please to Acts chapter 18. Verses 18 through 23 will be our text. The Apostle Paul has been in Corinth. Has spent about a year and a half in ministry there. And was brought up on charges before Gallio in his court. The Roman proconsul, the governor of the city. And charges were dismissed. We looked at that part of the text last week, this morning at verse 18. The Bible says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Chantria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. He left Priscilla and Aquila there. And he himself went to, into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from, from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you might bless this truth, this text to our understanding. Help us to see as we watch this closely that there is enough here to feed us and help us to be more devoted to you. So speak to us this day in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some of you who read a lot may have been introduced to some of the sermons of the Puritan Fathers. It's Many of them have been put in writing, been published publicly. And the sermon titles of the Puritans two and three hundred years ago were quite lengthy kind of sermon titles. Uh, Richard Baxter once wrote a sermon, The Character and Sound, The Character of a Sound Confirmed Christian as Also of a Weak Christian and the Seeming Christian written to imprint upon men's minds the true ideas or conception of godliness and Christianity. How's that for a sermon title? John Howe once wrote a sermon entitled, A Sermon Concerning Union Among Protestants, a Discourse, answering the following question. What may most hopefully be attempted to allay animosities among Protestants that our divisions may not be out may not be our ruin. Some of these titles are about as long as a sermon could be. Their sermons were never cliché. These men were not only taught theology. They were also disciplined in grammar. They were taught how to speak. They were taught how to write. And if you've ever read any of their sermons, they pack a lot in one sentence. They pack tons of truth and theology, and you really have to chew. You really have to think. You have to work to glean everything out of what they are saying. 
They were also taught logic and rhetoric, how to think and how to communicate. I've got to tell you, it's not my fault, but there aren't very many seminaries these days that teach logic and rhetoric. It might be there for an elective, but it's never there as a requirement. We sometimes hear politicians talk about how our public school systems are dumbing down our children. Well, everyone's been dumbed down a little bit at every level. Every level of education has been simplified because it's gotten to where people just don't tolerate deep thinking any longer. language of the Puritan Fathers is more formal than what we are accustomed to. Now, I've said that to kind of introduce what we'll be talking about this morning. My text title is briefly, The Spirit, the Power, and the Presence. And to clarify this, I would like to, I wanted to make it longer like the Puritans did. And perhaps I didn't make it long enough. But we're going to look this morning at the Spirit of the Lord the power or the authority of God's word and the presence of the church. The spirit of the Lord, the power of his word or the authority of his word and the presence of the church. There doesn't seem to be much going on in today's passage of study, but we should be careful. If you recall last week, I made a point about an event the event of the beating of Sosthenes. A lot of people are concerned it was a violent act. We wonder why did it happen? And we have often asked questions trying to understand why was he beaten? And that was one detail we weren't supposed to focus on. Luke doesn't give us the details about the attack. It's not very clear. But I made the point that God had promised Paul through a vision that he was going to have, while he was at Corinth, he was going to have freedom to preach and teach the gospel because there were people that belonged to the Lord there, and Paul needed to reach them. So, as I said last week, Sosthenes became a lightning rod, and we're pretty well convinced that he later became a believer if he was not one that day. So... Sosthenes' life ended, or at least came out with a happy ending, so to speak. All of that saying that even then, as of this morning, the focus of the message and the mission is on the word of God and the grace of the gospel. Today's passage is a record of a transition. While there doesn't seem to be a lot going on, we must not overlook the impact and influence of the power of God on the lives of the believers in the early church, especially Paul's life. We want to focus on the message and the mission. Our scriptures in this passage records the end of his second missionary journey. That's what's happening here. And he reports back to the sending church. We'll see that as well. And we see the beginning of the third missionary journey, all in this passage. It doesn't look like much is going on here, but 
There's a lot going on here. So think closely about the spiritual impact and influence of that day. You know, in our time, you and I are influenced, influenced by so much. It depends on where you are. As a citizen, as a Christian, as a believer, you are influenced by so much around you. If we could go back 30 years and say something to someone like, you need to check Google. And 30 years ago, people would say, what's Google? I don't know what you're talking about. There's so much influence that comes to us through the Internet, we cannot imagine living without it. There was a day and a time, if you were under 18 years old, you were not legally allowed to have an electronic device, like a pager or a cell phone. But now we're giving it to our grammar kids. There is so much influence around this that, that affect us in this world. And we can talk about the influence of politics and the influence of sports. There are fanatics everywhere. There was an influence, a very powerful influence. It was a spiritual influence going on since the day of Pentecost. And by the time we're reading this morning's text, by the time that these events happened, it was about 20 years since the day of Pentecost. So as we look at this, we want to look closely at the spiritual impact and influence of the day. We saw the Holy Spirit of the Lord at work. We saw the power of his word. And I would also... It's, Power can be understood two ways, an ability to get something done and the authority to do it. We're going to touch at both of them. The Holy Spirit of the Lord, the power of his word, and the presence of the church. Well, preacher, that all sounds interesting. Where are you finding this? How is this in the text? Verse 18 of Acts 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chantria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. There's our springboard. What is this about him going to the barber? What is this to do with anything? This could have been a Nazarite vow. And the Apostle Paul, being raised a Hebrew, being raised a Jew, would understand what this was. A Nazarite vow, it was a very unique thing that the law of Moses allowed, even recommended. You were not you're not required to keep this law very long. However, there were three Nazarites from birth in Scripture. In the Old Testament, there were two. In the New Testament, there was one. Samuel was devoted to the Lord by his parents, considered to be a Nazarite for his whole life. Samson 
was considered to be a Nazarite from birth. When the angel of the Lord came to Samson's parents and told them they were going to have a son, he would be a Nazarite from his birth. John the Baptist in the New Testament was also a Nazarite from birth. The word Nazar comes from the word Nazarite comes from the word Nazir in the Hebrew, which literally means to separate unto the Lord. Give to the Lord or devote to the Lord. And a Nazarite vow was basically a, found in Numbers chapter 6, a vow of devotion focused on a season of service to the Lord or a season of devotion to the Lord. It was temporary and it was voluntary. It's just something you wanted to do. Usually to give thanks to the Lord for what he had already done for you or what you expected him to do through prayer. It was a very common practice for the Jews in the Old Testament. And even during the New Testament time, the transition between the Old Testament law and the New Testament church. According to Numbers chapter 6, you were not allowed to eat or drink anything produced from the grapevine. No grape juice, no wine, no vinegar made from wine, no raisins, no seeds, no skins, nothing from the vine. You're not allowed to touch a dead body, even if it was a relative. You are not allowed to be near a dead body during your time of the vow because you would be ceremonially unclean and it would end the vow. And during the time of your vow, you were not allowed to cut your hair. You remember Samson? He was a Nazarite all his life. And when, when his hair got cut, all the blessing of the Lord left him. The vow of the Nazarite was usually ended... Remember, it was temporary and it was voluntary. The vow of the Nazarite ended with a thanksgiving offering in the Old Testament. Someone who was ending their Nazarite vow would bring, and, and it could be a man or a woman. It wasn't restricted to male or female. A man or a woman could do this. They would bring a burnt offering, a year-old unblemished lamb. They would bring a sin offering, a year-old unblemished male ewe, and a ram, a year-old offering for a sin offering. They would also provide grain offerings and drink offerings. All of this was a thanksgiving offering to the Lord to end their vow. And one other thing, at the end of their vow was when they cut their hair and they would lay that on the altar and burn their hair with their sacrifice. It was just a public testimony. I have given thanks to the Lord. I kept a vow with him. Our text says that Chantria Paul had cut his hair for he was under a vow. We don't know when Paul's vow began. Perhaps he had received, when he, after he had received the vision from the Lord, he began his vow and kept it for 18 months. If you want to look at what he Think, imagine what he looked like. Just look at our brother Drew. If you see him next week and he's bald and shaven, he's ended his vow. 
However, it is doubtful that Paul brought the offerings to the priest in Jerusalem. If you look carefully at the text, he ended his vow before going to Jerusalem. If he had brought offerings to Jerusalem, that would mean that he denied the gospel of his Savior. He denied the message he was preaching. But according to the custom, according to how he was raised, he was publicly demonstrating to others that I am keeping a vow to the Lord because he has blessed me with salvation. He has blessed me with the ministry of the gospel. That's what's going on here. Psalm 116, he could have very well had this committed in memory. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious in the Lord is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? to me. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. This Nazarite vow was a voluntary public statement of thanks to the Lord. And the Apostle Paul at this time was ending it. Doesn't mean he was not going to be thankful, but it's this public effort for all of the blessings God had given to him. Paul was responding to the goodness of God. And we see that his goodness, God's goodness, was expressed to him through the Spirit of the Lord. Since the day of Pentecost, 20 years earlier, the Spirit of the Lord had been moving in powerful ways throughout many of the regions of the Roman Empire. Paul wasn't the first one to share the gospel. If you remember how Jerusalem was crowded because of the festivals, because of Passover. Jerusalem was crowded after the resurrection of the Lord. And when the Holy Spirit came and filled them with his spirit, they all remained a while to get teaching from the people, from the disciples, from by then the apostles. And then they went back home to share the gospel everywhere, in every direction. So, believers were being birthed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jews were accepting Christ as their Redeemer and understanding His role as Messiah. Romans were receiving Christ as Savior. Greeks were forsaking their idols and their immoral customs and turning to Jesus. This was all new, and it was powerful, and it had an impact on the world. The Holy Spirit is a life-creating spirit. You know that. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if, there, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, the life-giving Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 9 of Romans 8, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Do you have the Spirit of Christ? If you've received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you certainly do. This is also, he is also a resurrecting spirit. He's not just a life-giving spirit, he is a resurrecting spirit. Ephesians 2.1, the Apostle Paul said that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. When the apostle wrote, wrote that we were by nature children of wrath does not mean that we were mad at everybody. He was talking about how God was angry at man's sin, deserving of his wrath. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So the Spirit of God is a life-creating spirit. New life in him is it a resurrecting spirit. You were once dead in your sins. You are now new life in Christ. You might think, Preacher, I wish I could see the Holy Spirit make that much difference in my life. I wish we could see a day like we saw in, old, in Paul's day. The same Holy Spirit that was working in Paul's day is the same Holy Spirit we have now. He has given you new life. He has resurrected your dead soul. The Spirit of the Lord, by the authority of the triune Godhead, through the atoning sacrifice of the Son, has given you new life in Christ. One of the problems is so many people hear that and they respond by saying, meh. We have, we have the Spirit of the Lord. He has been given to us. We also have the power of his word. We have the authority of his word. I was listening to Alistair Begless last week in my car, and I wish I wasn't driving because I wanted to stop and take notes. But he was talking about 
We believe that the Bible is the final authority for faith and practice. That's part of our confession. And we certainly should really believe it. But usually we just give that term lip service. Does the Bible, does God's word have authority in your life? Does the Bible rule your life, guide your life? Or are you just giving lip service? Well, I believe the Bible. Prove it. You say that you have faith. Show me your faith by your works. The works aren't going to save you. The works are going to display your faith. And you don't even have to cut your hair. Unless you want to. We don't often find Christians who are yielding to the authority of Scripture. Therefore, Scripture has no power over the believer. You have to submit to its authority. You have to give yourself to it. You have to say, I'm struggling with a decision. I am tempted with this, but Scripture says this. Are you going to yield to the temptation, or are you going to yield to what Scripture tells you? If the Word of God has no power in your life, if you do not yield to any authority in Scripture, then the Holy Spirit will not be near you. I'm not saying that you will lose salvation. I will just, I'm just saying that you will not be blessed. First Corinthians six seventeen. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And I need to clarify this word. I, I was amazed when I saw it. The word joined. We join so many things. We join AAA. We join this. We join that. And it really doesn't. We, just our name's on a list somewhere, or we're paying somebody for some service. He who is joined. The Apostle Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, selected the word kalao, glued, cemented. That's what it means. He who is glued to the Lord is one spirit with him. Therefore, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality against, sins against his own body. We hear so very often these next words taken out of context when they're talking about diet. But the Apostle Paul applied it directly to morality. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You say, my body is a temple. Well, whose temple is it? Your body is a temp temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's what the Apostle Paul was doing. Devoting to God a season of thanksgiving for all that God had done for him, spiritually and ministerially, graciously and mercifully, Paul had received blessing upon blessing for the ministry he had given to the Lord. He was just saying, thank you. Paul understood the power and the authority of God's word, and he was giving thanks for all God had done through his spirit and word. If you want the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, then yield to the authority of God's word. If you want the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, yield to the authority of God's word. Give all the rights of your life over to him. Makes you kind of want to tug at your collar and go gulp. First Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit. I used to wonder about that verse a lot when I was a young man. How can the spirit of a sovereign God be quenched? Who is stronger, him or you? Well, the language is used, the words were selected to make it easy for us to understand. We're not quenching any power at all. We're offending the Holy Spirit if we keep sin in our life. He's not going to bless someone who's practicing pockets of protected private sin. How's that for alliteration? You're keeping sin in your life, God's not going to, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to hell if you've received him as Savior, but it needs you means you do need to repent. You need to give in to the authority, surrender your rights to what you think is pleasurable and give those rights to God. Trust his word and his authority. Repent of your sins and receive the blessing of the Spirit. Isaiah 63.10, the prophet was talking about Israel's rebellion as a nation. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he, the Holy Spirit, turned to be their enemy. And he himself fought against them. I remember I loved both my parents dearly. I know they loved me. I have wonderful memories of that as a child growing up but I remember when I was disobedient or did something that they did not want me to do I grew up in that age when you got spanked now they would consider it child abuse 
it's almost like when I was bad, they turned against me and became my enemy. And that's what God does to whom he loves. He chastens, he chastises, he spanks those he loves to bring them back to repentance. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul was giving thanks for the Spirit of the Lord in his life and the power and authority of God's Word in his life. And he was also recognizing the presence of the church. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a while longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. from Ephesus when he had landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church. Anytime they were talking about Going up to the church, they're talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was his sending church. This was the one that laid hands upon him and sent him out on his missionary journey. He was going back to report to the church. He recognized the presence and even the measured authority the church had over his ministry. The church is the bride of Christ. She is our spiritual mother who takes the seed of the Father's word sows everlasting life into the world. The presence of the church in this world is supposed to mean something and it's supposed to mean something to you and I. It's not an option. Church is not an option. Church is what we belong to as Christians, so we should come together and worship as a church. We should come together and minister to one another as a church. We should come together and minister to the community as a church. But we see more and more these days, the church means less and less. And to so many people now, she means very little or nothing. I've read several articles about surveys taken that since this COVID pandemic restrictions, there are a lot of churches that closed down for a while. There are even some churches in America that are yet to open back up. But they're saying there are even less Christians returning to church now since churches are opening. The message of the church is supposed to be light and truth. If you know someone who attends a compromised church because of all the people there that they love, 
They're going to the church for the wrong reasons. Well, I couldn't leave that church. I have so many people that I love there that, I, that I've known for so long. But the preacher is not teaching truth. Well, that's okay. No, it's not. The three marks of the church, right preaching and teaching of the truth of God's word, right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. If a church fails in any one of those areas, that church ceases to be a church recognized by the courts of heaven. And one of the first places a lot of compromised churches fail is in preaching and teaching the truth. They don't, they modify it, they change it. The message of the church is supposed to be light and truth. The love of the church is meant to be, bring healing. 1 Peter 2.12, and we're almost done. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing that they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The love of the church is meant to bring healing. I heard the old country preacher say that a minister's job is in his sermons to afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted. That is also the ministry of the church. And that cannot be successfully done without the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do both at the same time without the power of the Holy Spirit. You can preach... Repentance, exposing the sins of others, to bring them to the gospel of grace, to bring them to the healing fountain. But if you're doing with it out, the Holy Spirit is going to sound like judgmental, self-righteous arrogance. The message of the church is supposed to be light and truth. The love of the church is meant to bring healing. Healing must always include repentance. And the presence, the presence of the church, according to First, First Peter, as we just read, the presence of the church is supposed to impress the world. They're supposed to see what kind of love we demonstrate here. And though they disagree with our message, they should be able to recognize that we are a kingdom of peace. How well has the church done? Shall we pray? Lord, we are thankful for your word and its power. We're thankful for its healing touch in our lives. And we pray that as we yield to its authority, that we may as one people give you glory together. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in hymn books to number 468.